Uh, welcome to CBC. If you're new, my name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great pr privilege of closing out John's gospel, which we've been working uh, through for many months now. Um, so John 21, we bring it to a close, and so we uh, hope you find great encouragement as we hear the word of the Lord preached. So if you'll uh, open up your Bibles uh, with us to John chapter 21, and we will get moving here this morning. John chapter 21, the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we conclude the beautiful, wonderful gospel by John, written down and given to us, Lord, that as we approach this text, we can find great encouragement as your disciples here in the 21st century, as those who are seeking to follow you and to trust you with all of our lives. And so we pray that the words that you have given to us this morning, that they would pierce our minds and our hearts, that our, our minds would understand that intellectually we would be able to grasp the great truths that you have to give to us. Lord, that we would be able to apply them and live them out faithfully in our lives. Lord, we seek to be true disciples, to be people who follow you, and we ask that you would work as only you can work to help us take one step closer to Christ's likeness in our lives as we work through your text this morning. Father, we thank you for the words of John 21. We thank you that you conclude the beautiful gospel with this final story. Lord, might it be a great encouragement to us as we gather as your people this morning. Amen. The final chapter of John. If you go all the way back to John chapter 1, you'll remember that he opens up with a prologue, a brief synopsis of what this gospel is going to be about. And now he's going to finish his gospel with a type of epilogue, one final story to encapsulate what life will be like after the resurrection for the disciples. John 20 has come, the disciples are encouraged, they've witnessed Jesus, they've believed that he's risen from the dead. John even finishes with the purpose statement at the end of John chapter 20 about why he wrote this book. It seems like the book might come to a logical conclusion at the end of chapter 20, and yet John gives us this final story in John chapter 21 to set the the tone for life moving forward. And he opens up in chapter 21 with simple words, after this. After this, after what? After Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to the disciples. This is what's happening This third and final story of Jesus appearing to the disciples in John's gospel is going to happen on this subtle fishing trip. Peter, in the midst of receiving all of this news of the witness of the resurrection in chapter 20, of him appearing with them, uh, decides that what he needs at this point in time is a good fishing trip. Uh, And so he heads out and says, I'm going fishing, to which the other disciples say, sounds good, we're coming with you. Some people read this and interpret it as a dereliction of duty. Peter, the instigator, and all the disciples with him, running from their job, fleeing from doing the work that the Lord has set before them. They conclude this is a continuation of Peter's betrayal that's set forth in chapter 18 of the book of John, where he denies Christ. However, I believe this is unfair. The ascension has not happened. Jesus has not gone to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And even more, if we go to the other Gospels, we see what did Jesus ask the disciples to do? Wait, to do nothing. Right? They're to wait until the helper comes. And so they're not really running from any duty. They don't have anything that they've been directly commanded to do. 
Peter simply, probably, is a little bit overwhelmed and just needs to catch his breath to process things. And so what better place to do this than the peaceful tranquility of the lake as they go fishing? He goes to find his bearings. He's not abandoning Christ here. Something else is at place. But nevertheless, Peter rallies the boys, goes to the lake, and heads out to go fishing. He's going to have a time with them to process and maybe even make a few bucks in the process. But there's no drama in this story of the outcome of their efforts. By verse 3, we already know what this fishing trip has yielded like every other fishing trip known to mankind. No fish, right? You go out, how'd you do? I got nothing, right? This is fishing. That's why I don't go fishing. Uh, But nevertheless, John tells us this. Verse 3, they get nothing. But the fishing is not the story. This is all a background, and John is giving us something to help us understand something larger. And it's why the endeavor, Peter and the disciples on this fishing trip, only serves to offer the background for what life will be like apart from Christ as he ascends to the Father. What will life be like for these disciples as they begin to take their place in the story of God? Three things I think John's going to tell us from chapter 21 here this morning. Apart from Christ, the disciples of Christ will be fruitless. Apart from Christ, the disciples of Christ will be fruitless. Two, a disciple of Christ must have care for the people of Christ. A disciple of Christ must have care for the people of Christ. And and third and final point, a disciple of Christ must remain focused on Christ. A disciple of Christ must must remain focused on Christ. And so John 21.4 shows these weary disciples, perhaps refreshed, we don't know, uh, after this long night of fishing that's yielded nothing, the sun breaks, perhaps coming up over the mountains or whatever is surrounding uh, the sea as they come in from the night of fishing, and they see a man on the shore. They don't know who this man is, but he yells out to them, Hey, do you have any fish? Their response is simple, no. The man then commands them, just cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some fish. Don't worry about it. They immediately do this. What is the result? A major transformation in the, in the, in the uh, fortune for these fishermen. No fish, too many fish to even haul in the net on the boat. In one instance, this causes an immediate realization for John and the other disciples. The man on the shore is none other than Jesus himself. And so why does John include this story in the epilogue of his gospel? Of all the stories to choose from, he chooses this one. The end of chapter 21, what's he say? If we were to include all of the things that Jesus did, if if all of them were written down, there would not be enough room in this world to contain the books written. And indeed, he's right. John rightly understands here the work of Jesus isn't just his time on earth with the disciples, of which you could write many things. The work of Jesus is the work of the pre-incarnate one. Going all the way back, Jesus is pre-existent. He's existed for eternity. Everything that has ever happened has involved Jesus. The pages of books cannot contain this. And yet John looking out over the vast multitude of stories that he could choose to end his gospel, chooses this one. And he wants us to understand what life will be like, as we've said, in the age of the church. 
How will the disciples function in this new reality? And John wants to immediately draw the contrast between the results of the disciples when they set out under their own labors, under their own intuitions, under their own efforts, and what will happen when they work in response to Christ. Will we go on our own efforts, or will we go on behalf of Christ? When Peter and the disciples have gone out, they've toiled all evening, they have yielded absolutely nothing. They've come up empty-handed. But in one moment, obeying the Father, what happens? An abundance of fish. They had nothing, but under the direction of Christ, their work turns to a great success. And it brings us into that first point in his gospel this morning. Apart from Christ, the disciples of Christ will be fruitless. We should not forget the words that uh, John has given us just before this in John 15, 5, when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you cannot bear any fruit. Right? Abide in me is this theme in John 15. And yet here by John 21, he's reaffirming this with a story. If these people are going to produce fruit, if they're going to be the fishers of men, if they're going to be the workers of the harvest, they are going to have to do it while being connected to Jesus. If they're going to have success, it's going to only happen through Christ. They must be dependent on Jesus. If they go out and they teach and they share according to their own power, their own plans, even their own intuitions, the result is sure. They will come up empty. But if the disciples head out and they live under the instruction of Jesus according to the power of the Holy Spirit that he's promised to give to them, they will have an overwhelming success. The conversion of the nations is sure. They will be fishers of men in an abundance. 153. There's probably no significance there other than to just show it's an overwhelming amount of people that they are going to have success, that are going to come to Christ from the nations. So John gives us this reminder at the very beginning of this story that the disciple must be dependent on Christ. And it's a great gift of God to help these disciples to be prepared for the work ahead of, for, ahead of them. They cannot save anybody without the help of Jesus. No matter how great of stories they tell, they will save nobody apart from Christ. But with Jesus, there's promise to be an abundance of those responding to the message. But we have to pause here, because some people take this and say, God will do it or he won't do it, which is a true statement. Jesus is going to do what he does, and there's nothing we can do to cause it to happen or to stop it from happening. But some people take this and they apply it too far. They say... Jesus will do it or he won't do it. It's all in God's plan. It's under his control. So why do anything? God's going to do what he is going to do. They conclude because they say, apart from God, we can do nothing. A true statement. If God wants to save somebody, he will save somebody. So I don't really need to talk to my neighbors. I don't need to share the gospel with my coworkers. I don't need to do anything. And while it's true that apart from Christ, they will have no success, that Jesus is going to save who he's going to save, people must not misunderstand this and what it means to rest in God's power. In Matthew 25, there's a beautiful story about a master going out and leaving some talents with his servants. And this isn't like, you know, this guy's be a good speaker, and this guy's, you know, he's a good basketball player. Here's some talents I'm giving you. No, talents is money. 
And so when the master leaves, he leaves these three different servants with uh, various amounts of money. Uh, He leaves, and the servants, two of them, uh, invest it. They do something with what God has given them, or the master has given them. Uh, The last one, because he realizes the master has worked hard, just buries the money in the ground. He does nothing with it. When the master comes back and he takes an accounting from his servants, what did you do with the things that I've entrusted to you? Uh, The first two say, you know, we invested it, we did this, we brought you back this much in return. But the final man says, oh, master, I know you've toiled hard, you've worked hard, and I don't want to risk losing what you've worked so hard to gain, so I just buried it in the ground to protect it. Here it is. Here's what you've given me back. Here's the amount of money. Uh, the master in this story turns to this last servant and rebukes him. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. And church, we must be careful that when we confess that apart from Christ, we are unable to bring people to faith, that we're unable to do anything, that doesn't mean that we're called to not do anything. It means we don't do things under our own power. We have been entrusted with the wonderful gift of salvation, the hope of Jesus. And our calling is to take what has been given to us and let it be multiplied. To know that we're not going to be people that can ever say anything convincing enough or well enough to save people, but God is going to work through the power of his word to bring people to himself. The disciples were called to work, to go out and do the work of Christ, to be fishers of men. Yes, apart from God, they can accomplish and do nothing, but they are not called to do nothing. The power of Christ, we might say it this way, the power of Christ is necessary to do the work of Christ in order to reap the harvest of Christ. They must be dependent on Jesus, but they must also work. And so John is challenging us as we read chapter 21 to realize that our efforts will always be fruitless unless we become dependent on Christ, and yet we should work to bring about the good news to the nations. The disciples must go out, and we should too, to share the gospel, but not leaning on our own abilities. For we knew that result will lead us to coming up empty. And so the logical question then that we begin to ask ourselves is how do we lean on Christ? How do we know that we're trusting in his power and not our own power? John has already begun to point to this earlier when he has said, abide in me. Abide in me. You want to know that you're working according to my power and not your own power? You must be a person who abides in me who pursues Jesus. We're constantly seeking Christ and in communication with him through reading his word and through prayer. And so we should read this story and evaluate our own lives. We should read this story and ask ourselves if we're listening to the words of Jesus or are we trying to do things on our own efforts. One big indicator of this, of our pursuit of God, is what our life looks like in pursuit of his words, so studying of scripture, and through prayer. We understand God through his word. It's how he reveals himself to us. It's how he shows us his character, his attributes. And so if we're not pursuing the word of God, if we're not seeking to know who he is through his word, then that's a really good indicator that we're just seeking to do things according to the power of man. What does the best blog say about how I should share the gospel with my neighbor instead of looking to scripture and reading and having it speak to us? What even is the gospel? These are questions we must ask. 
But simultaneously, we need to be careful that we don't just pursue the word. And what I mean by this is we understand God rightly through his word, but there is a subtle temptation, I think, in Western society to want to be people who are so intellectual that we never actually do things like pray. And if we look across the landscape in America, I believe that there is a drought of prayer. And perhaps the reason why we don't see that many uh, conversions is because as Christians, we just don't really pray all that often anymore. Right? We pray maybe before we eat did. Thank you, thank you for this food, O oh Lord. Bless it to our bodies. Right? We play, pray that like a ritual over and over. We pray before we go to bed with our children. But those real deep heart-level prayers where we go before the Lord and say, Lord, help me. Help me understand your word. Help me to share the gospel with my neighbors or my coworkers or those that I'm coming into contact with. Those prayers are often not found. And the prayer ministry of the believer of the disciple, I think, is a really good indicator on the level of dependence that they have in the Lord. If they're not asking God to help, then they're probably not resting on God's power to do his work. They're simply trusting that they have enough resources and know-how to do the work of God. There is a call for us as disciples to be people who pray and pray deeply that God would work in our lives. But then the story continues. The attention now lies in verse 15, this man Peter. The fish are caught, uh, and in his excitement, Peter has jumped off the boat, and he swam to the shore. The other people arrive shortly after him to a charcoal fire with some fish on it. And this might seem like an insignificant detail. Okay, you know, there's this fire there. But we have to remember in the book of John, when was the last time we saw a charcoal fire? Indeed, it was with this man Peter in John chapter 18. And the last notice of a charcoal fire is this man Peter denying Christ. And so John, I think, intentionally is drawing our attention to Peter in chapter 18 and Peter here in chapter 21. And the charcoal fire is meant to help illuminate. There's the scent of it that should grab our attention and say, what is happening here? As they finish breakfast, Jesus turns his attention to Peter. And he asks him about his love for him three times. And each time after Jesus confesses his love, or I mean Peter confesses his love to Jesus, there's a response for him to care for his lamb or his sheep. And this is the second point that we begin to see this morning. A disciple must have care for the people of Christ. But we must pause and ask, why three times? What is the meaning of this? What is John drawing our attention to as we read chapter 21? Two things, I believe. First, it's to deal with Peter specifically. Like I said, we have this aroma of the charcoal fire that is coming off the pages as we read it. And we connect it to John chapter 18. Three times Peter had denied Jesus. Now three times in chapter 21, he is going to affirm him. Before Peter can fulfill the call to feed the sheep, he must first repent and receive forgiveness for what he's done. You cannot serve the sheep if you still have sin in your life. And there's this call coming off the page here of what it means to have saving faith. Saving faith involves trust in Jesus and repentance for sin. 
Saving faith believes in Jesus and is a turning away from sin and a turning to Jesus Christ. It's a reorientation of our lives. And this is what must happen for Peter. For Peter, and by extension, the rest of the disciples and us today, before any of us can serve the Lord, sin has to be addressed. We know as we read John up until this point that it's addressed through the cross of Christ, but it also involves a repentance of the sin. One author puts it this way, a relationship with Jesus begins when, in his presence, we face up to all that grieves and contradicts God's holy will in our lives, whatever this may cost us. In this moment for Peter, it's his pride. He is probably humiliated in front of his closest friends here, these other disciples, at the incessant questioning of his love uh, in front of these other disciples by Jesus. But Peter, nevertheless, must confess that he trusts in Jesus and deal with the sin of his denial. Jesus knows sin can't simply be brushed under the rug. And so here in John chapter 21 is this beautiful reminder for Peter and for us today that to ignore sin in our lives is to ignore a festering wound that will hurt our ability to fulfill our mission and call as disciples. Sin has to be dealt with. But we also know through Scripture that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive. He will forgive us time and time again. And so the call for us is to not let the shadows, the overwhelming sense of shame, uh, uh, cloud our lives, and instead to confess and receive forgiveness. Jesus died that we might be saved. Peter did not forget this principle when he proclaims the gospel. If you go to uh, Acts chapter 2 in just a short few pages in the Bible, as he finishes preaching his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, and all the Jews respond, what should we do as they come face to face with what has just happened? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter knows that the the forgiven man, a follower and disciple of Jesus, is not called just to be forgiven, but to also love the people of God. And so once sin is dealt with, the command always follows. Follow me, love me, feed my sheep. Following Jesus and loving Jesus mean accepting responsibility for the people of Jesus, a truth that I believe we need to call back to in our present time. A commitment to Christ involves commitment to the church of Christ. Think about it this way. You have a best friend. You're really close. You do everything together. He gets married. You hate his wife. She's the worst. Right? What happens? Right? Does your friendship continue to blossom? No. It falls apart because every time you're with him, you're like, I don't want to hang out with this guy. His wife's the worst. Right? This is what happens. And yet simultaneously, we look at Jesus, and we know his bride is the church. And yet we look at the people that belong to Jesus, and we're like, they are the worst. I don't want to be with them. I don't want to care for them. I don't want to talk to them. And so we move into our different camps, right? This happens in two levels. One, even in the local church, right? There's little cliques and every, every church is going to have these things, right? People who really like to get together and hang out and it's good that we want to hang out together. But, you know, as our church grows, you'll start to see, you know, you know I don't, those people over there, I don't like them, you know, the left-siders. Uh, you know, if they would only be the right-siders. Uh, and so the people, uh, we start to have factions in our church and we don't have that great of care or love for each other. 
But I think even more so, we see this on the global level. And we see the church broad all over across the world, and we say, those people, we don't like them. We don't want to be friends with them. We don't want to talk to them. And we don't see them as the redeemed people of God because they disagree on one or two theological issues. And although they may be very important issues, we, instead of loving them and caring for them and seeking to have discussion with them, cast them out. We can't cast away the bride of Christ. If we are his people, then we should be committed to him and by extension, his bride. Genuine New Testament conversion, Bruce Milne says this, means not only turning to and accepting Jesus, it also means turning to and accepting his bride, the church. Jesus' love for his church remains undiminished even though the church be torn, ill-clad, dirty in places, and generally malnourished and diseased. The church is still his bride, the people for whom he died, and who are therefore the burden of his concern. And so he speaks his word today to those who will hear it. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. If you consider yourself a believer, what does your attitude towards the people of Jesus look like? Do you see them as those who are loved by God, or do you see other Christians as something less? How then in your life can you begin to live out that command to feed my sheep? The story doesn't end there. The command three times to take care of his sheep, Jesus finishes by telling Peter just what this will entail. And so in verse 18, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Poor Peter. Sometimes I feel bad for the guy. He just jumped off the boat, swam 100 yards, which is something that I cannot do, uh, to get to, to Jesus in his excitement. Not only has Jesus publicly humiliated him in front of his friends, uh, as Peter has forced to come and reconcile with what he had just done a week prior, but now Jesus says, you're going to die. This is what it's going to mean to follow me. You are going to be publicly killed. To this, Peter has an unexpected response. If it was you, certainly if it was me, and Jesus said, you know, you're going to die, I would say, okay, when? Uh, who's going to do it? You know, can I maybe avoid this for a little bit longer? Maybe like Hezekiah in the Old Testament, I'll be like, Lord, can you delay it seven years? Uh, I don't want to do it quite yet. Uh, but Peter doesn't do that. He never asks questions about what this death is really going to look like. Not Peter. Peter's nosy. Peter always wants to stick his nose and see what else is going on. And so he says, okay. But he turns around and he's like, but what about that guy? What about that guy, Jesus? What is it going to look like for him? This is all fine for me, uh, but I want to know about John. But the response from Jesus to Peter is simply to say, keep following me. Don't worry about John. As disciples, this is our final point this morning, the call here in John chapter 21 is that a disciple must remain focused on Jesus. Faithful ministry entails working according to the power of Jesus to serve his people while maintaining your focus on him. This last point is a simple truth. Disciples of Jesus all are called to face life differently. There is a great temptation in our lives to look around at other Christians and to say to God, what about them? 
why don't they have to experience what I have to experience, or why don't I get to experience what they get to experience? Simultaneously, we want to affirm Jesus, but we're constantly looking at everyone around us and saying, why don't I get what they get? There's a simple truth in Scripture. All disciples of Christ are called to suffer. But what Scripture doesn't tell us, and and indeed tells us the exact opposite, is that not every Christian will, will suffer the same way. Every Christian will suffer, but that suffering will be different. There's different levels and different callings for people's lives. And so Peter here wants to take his focus off of Jesus after Jesus has just said, Peter, follow me, and instead look at these other people. But what what about them? What are they going to have to deal with? What are they going to have to do for the sake of following you, Jesus? And so we ask this question, and we ask ourselves, why don't they ever have to suffer? And when's the last time they got fired from their job for following Jesus? Right? It's the third time this year that I've said something about Jesus and I've gotten in trouble at, at work for it. Why don't they have to live with less great things in life? Right? They follow you faithfully, I follow you faithfully, but they make eight times what I make. Jesus, why can't I experience that? Why can't they have to give up financial freedom? And so we look and we keep saying in our lives, what about them? What about them? But the response here in John chapter 21 is simple. Keep following me with an exclamation. Peter, stop taking your eyes off of me and focus on what I've called you to do. What will sustain you aren't the blessings in your life. What will sustain you through the ups and downs of life is a gaze that is firmly locked on Jesus Christ, who constantly has his hand out asking you, I'm here, I will help you get through this. He reaches out through the trials and through the not trials, through the good things in life. When our gaze is firmly locked on Jesus, we can avoid falling. We can avoid the temptation to begin to look on other people and say, what about them? And instead have our gaze on Jesus and say, whatever you ask me to do, Jesus, I will do. But when our eyes start to come off of Jesus and begin to drift to the other people that are around us, even if they're Christians, our steps begin to falter. Our trust in him begins to waver. Peter would serve for three decades after this moment. The end of his ministry would be an uncomfortable death, something that has likely happened by the time that John writes this gospel. The other disciples, church at, at, uh, all across the nations, have probably come to understand that Peter indeed did give his life for Christ. But Peter's not able to do this because he finds inner strength. Right? He mans up and just works really hard. No. Peter serves for three decades, suffering all kinds of things for the sake of Christ because he realizes that if he trusts in Christ's power to do Christ's work, because he understands that he's a man who is forgiven, and has been called to service, and because he's a man whose focus remains on Christ. And so the call for us is to be a disciple. What will life look like when Jesus is gone? It's going to look like people who faithfully trust in him, that they know that they will accomplish nothing apart from Christ, and so they will pursue him with all of their life. It will look like people who are repentant and have a heart and a desire and a love for the church for brothers and sisters in Christ, and it will look like people whose focus is locked in on the Messiah, who aren't 
moving their gaze on the things of this world, whatever crises come at them at home or in the news or any other place where they're uh, going about their days, but people whose focus is solely on Jesus Christ and what he has called them to do. Be a disciple of Christ. A few questions as we end this morning. Number one, what keeps you from sharing Christ? What keeps you from sharing Christ? The answer to this, and then ask this question, what does your answer to what keeps you from sharing Christ say about what you are trusting in to share your faith? What keeps us from sharing Christ often, we say something like, well, if I just knew a little bit uh, more about the gospel, if I had some more verses memorized, if I just had the right evangelism plan or the right track or the right book to hand out, then I would be able to share Christ. But if we step back and we look at that, we have to ask ourselves, what does that say about what you're really trusting in to share the gospel? It doesn't seem that's what John tells us in 21. Second, what does repentance look like in your life? Are you confessing your shortcomings to God and to a faithful Christian who can affirm you? Or do you have somebody who you go to who you say, man, I blew it? And they say, it's okay. The Lord has forgiven you. It's a great and glorious truth. Or are you somebody who just harbors these things in your life and never deals with them? Three, what is your attitude towards the church of Jesus? What is your attitude towards the church of Jesus? Are you like that friend who hates the best friend's bride? Or do you look at the church of Jesus with the same love and affection that he does? And finally, at this moment, where is your focus? What is your focus? What are you gazing on? What is, what is the thing that your eyes see? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Answer that question and if need so, talk to somebody about what it would look like to reorient your focus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we gather as your people. We thank you for the high calling of being a disciple, of being somebody who trusts in Jesus. Lord, knowing that we are your redeemed people, that we indeed are your bride, that we belong to you. Father, we thank you that you give us that great truth over and over through the pages of Scripture. And we ask and pray that as we look through John 21, as we seek to faithfully apply this to our lives, Lord, that we would be people who see an abundance when we cast our nets for the sake of the gospel. That as we seek to be the fishers of men, Lord, we long and pray for the days that our nets don't come up empty, but they are overflowing with fish, of people responding to the beautiful truth of the gospel, of the Messiah crucified and resurrected so that his people might be saved. Father, we ask that you would help us to stay focused on you, that our gaze would be locked in on you, that we wouldn't be distracted by the things of this world or the fate of other believers even, Lord, but that we would stay focused on the things that you have called us to do and the faithfulness that we can have in the ministry that you give us. Lord, help us to faithfully proclaim you to neighbors, to friends, to family, to coworkers, Lord, to be light in a dark world, to bring the hope of the gospel to the nations that we might see more and more respond in its true saving faith. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you give it to us and that we can have trust because of who you are and what you have done. Amen.